0: Welcome to this week's Thirsty Podcast. Uh, I am Pastor Michael Zarling, and I am here with my associate and co-host, Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer. We are recording at Water of Life in the Pit of Despair. We talked about that a little while ago, and I wanted to explain it a little bit more closely in that we don't want people thinking that they are coming and then they're leaving talking to one of us or both of us, Nathan and they're filled with despair. Uh, that Psalm 40 talks about uh, coming to the pit of despair and that God lifts them from that pit out of the mud and mire. Then he sets their feet on solid ground, and he has given me a new song to sing. So the idea is in calling this the pit of despair is both it's scriptural and is based on the prince's pride, and I
1: think it's funny. It is... It is funny, and it's also funny, too, because there are... Well, there's a window in this room, but it looks out in the hallway. And then in the office we share, there is also only one window, but I can't see it. So very often, I have no idea whether it's raining or even whether it's day or night. So you kind of lose track of time down here. And so the idea, too, with the Pit of Despair is that
0: A lot of times if you're asking to talk to the pastor, you might be in despair. And then if we're doing our job properly, we're sharing God's word and Lord willing, the Holy Spirit will work through that word to lift up those despairing souls and lift them out of the muck and mire and so that they're leaving with a song in their hearts.
1: Yeah, and that's really... I mean, one of the the goals of counseling in general is to be able to share the joy of the gospel as much as there is the stereotype. Pastors really don't like slamming people with the law. We would much rather give them that sweet balm of the gospel um, so that they can rejoice in their forgiveness. Yeah,
0: we don't want to be in the pit of despair in the Princess Bride and uh, taking years off of someone's life like they did to Wesley so that uh, he is screaming loudly. That's not our goal. Our goal is to lift them up with God's word. I just wanted to make sure that everyone understood that. So, Nathan, this week we are celebrating a very special festival. In fact, we are celebrating that festival today when we're recording. What is
1: today, September 29th, in the Christian church year? Well, it's the Festival of St. Michael and All Angels, or Michaelmas, if you want to call it that. yes. And what's so special about this festival except that besides it shares my name? Well, it's really the one time of year you really kind of can focus on kind of the invisible spiritual warfare that's going on in the lives of our believers and kind of draw their attention uh, both to God's blessing of angels and then also to, you know, how Satan is that roaring lion that's out there looking for people to devour.
0: And we're going to focus on all three scripture readings today, but we're only going to touch on the sec- the first reading from Second Kings and then we'll we'll touch on the gospel lesson uh, from Luke chapter 10, which is very short. And then we'll spend the rest of our time on the epistle lesson from Revelation chapter 12. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 6. And the reason I wanted to talk about this one is this is probably an unknown Bible story. And it's just so cool. Uh, The holy writer, by inspiration of the Spirit, writes, Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, "'Beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there.'" So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God, the prophet. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, "'Will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel?' So he's asking if anyone's a spy. None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. He's being hyperbolic. Uh, not that the king is gathering all of his officials together in his bedroom and they're making plans. But what he's saying there is that by. The gift of God speaking to the prophet Elisha that Elisha is telling the king of Israel exactly what the king of Aram's plans are and then the king uh, dodges them or is ready for them. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he is in Dothan. He then sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. So Dothan is about 12 miles in to Israel from Samaria. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So that is just a great line as we focus today on the scripture readings about the angels. Just remember that one. And I think it's an important verse to us, for us as Christians, when we're going through any difficult time and we're praying for God's protection uh, just from the forces of evil in the world, is understand there are more good angels than there are demons. Uh, there are... Those who are with us are more than those who are with him. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes, the servant's eyes, so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So what's going on here is the king of Aram is so upset at Elisha for laying out all of his plans to the king of Israel, he sends a huge army to go and get... Elisha and when Elisha's servant wakes up in the morning and he looks out of his house he sees the whole countryside filled with soldiers and chariots and horses and then Elisha prays to God God open my servant's eyes so that when the servant's eyes were opened he saw the uh, entire hillside filled with angelic soldiers and horses and chariots.
1: It really is a It really is a neat story, and it kind of made me wonder if God had given Elisha this knowledge for this one instance, or if because he was the prophet of God, did he always see God's angels around him? Uh, And it just is a reminder that we also have that army of angels that is watching over us and protecting us.
0: Yeah, and like I said before, as we talk about angels... Uh, I think it's important to understand that we have those angels around us. So I want to see, Nathan, if you had any good angel story in your life to share. So here's one. I've got a a bunch of them, but I'll just tell this one. This is years ago. Uh, I have four daughters, and my third daughter, Lydia, she had to be about four or five at the time, and she shared a a bedroom with our youngest daughter, Belle, who was one or two at the time, because all of our girls are about three years apart. And my wife, Shelley and I were down in the living room, and we heard a loud crash from the bedroom. And so we rushed upstairs, and there we found Lydia laying on the ground, as well as the gla- glass uh, aquarium laying on the ground and her dresser laying on the ground. What had happened was Lydia had decided that she wanted to play with a hamster that was in the glass aquarium. So she pulled her drawers out to make steps and climbed up there while that made it unstable, and the whole thing came crashing down. But Lydia wasn't injured, uh, nor was the hamster injured. The glass aquarium wasn't injured. So what I imagine, it could have been just coincidence, but what I imagine, because God's angels are unseen spirits, that one angel caught her in one arm, and then in the other arm he caught the aquarium and he set them down gently and allowed the uh, the dresser to fall. That's just a, one simple example
1: of angels that are walking among us. The one that I always think of is I in my former occupation was working, and we had one of those... uh, you see them a lot of times in factories. They're like a 250-gallon chemical container that a forklift can carry with liquids in it, but we had it as a device to water trees. And we had it on the back of a trailer, which I had attached to my truck, and I had it full of water. So there's, there's several hundred pounds of water plus the weight of the trailer. Well, I was stupid, and I had all of the weight behind the axle of the trailer, and so it wasn't coming off of my truck, so I kicked at it, I had been leaning over it, I had been working on it, and it wasn't latched, and I kicked it, and it finally let loose, and I felt the tongue of the trailer brush my nose. If I would have been an inch closer, it would have clipped me under the jaw. It may have killed me. It for sure would have shattered my jawbone. Um, but yeah, I think there was an angel that was there that either pushed me back or had me, kept me from walking forward. Yeah, otherwise I would have I would have probably been dead. Oh, well, I forgot about my story. This exactly the same thing. I was a teenager,
0: uh, and we were unhooking my dad's hay baler. This one had a thrower on the back, and. It came up the same way you described, and it just missed, missed my jaw, same thing. It would have shattered my jaw, could have killed me, and so forth. Another story comes to mind. This is not my story, so I don't have uh, all of the particulars, but it was a-, a layman who shared this story one breakfast at a board for a mission meeting. He talked about how he had been in the military when he was a younger man. He was a much older man, probably in the 60s or 70s now. But this was recent that he had been out sailing the Appalachians, someplace he hadn't been, and they were staying at a friend's cabin, he and a couple buddies. The the friend wasn't there. They found the cabin. The next morning, they went out hiking all day. And being an Army guy, he had his uh, compass, and so he wasn't worried. When they were done hiking, they followed the compass back to the cabin, or so they thought. As the sun was going down and they weren't coming they weren't finding the cabin a lady came out of the woods and asked him and his companions where he was going and he said we're going this way to Dave's cabin she was that's the wrong way his cabin's over that way and they said no I'm following the compass well he then he realized his compass was uh, right above a magnet that he had in his pocket, which he didn't realize. And it was, so it was throwing him off just a little bit. But a little bit in the woods is a lot. And uh, she had pointed out where they needed to go. The next morning, they got back to the cabin, uh, and there they talked to Dave, the owner of the cabin, and he explained the story to Dave, and Dave said, there's no woman up here. There's no other houses out here. Uh, there is no woman like you described. Now, could it have been just a regular human woman? Yeah. Or could it have been an angel that God sent to protect his people?
1: And it's just fascinating. These these stories that so many different believers have that we can't really explain. And, you know, God tells us, yeah, there are times that I, I send my angels and you may interact with them. Um, but again, it's, it's God working through his servants to watch over and protect us. And I describe it um, in my sermon. This is a special blessing that God gives to his people to have these angels. He could work directly. I mean, God is everywhere and all-powerful, but it's this additional blessing to have these angels that are there watching over us, protecting us, and keeping us safe. Yeah, it's like it says in Psalm 91,
0: the Lord promises his angels have charge over you to keep you in all your ways. They shall bear you up in their hands, lest you dash, dash your foot against a stone. And it's like we are taught to pray in Luther's small catechism as Luther teaches us every morning and evening to pray, let your holy angel be with me that the wicked foe may have no power over me. Uh, I wanted to share the verses that immediately follow that Old Testament lesson for St. Michael and all angels because now the the servant is able to see Uh, All of the angels, the angelic army that is on the hillside, his eyes are opened. But listen to what happens next. This is verse 18 of 2 Kings 6. When the Arameans came down, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, just as Elisha had asked. So it's just the wonder of God. The servant's eyes are opened. And then Elisha prays for the Aramean soldier's eyes to be closed. But it doesn't end there. Then Elisha said to them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I'll take you to the man you're looking for. So he brought them to Samaria. When they came into Samaria, Elisha prayed, "O oh Lord, open their eyes so that they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they saw that they were right in the middle of Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, Shall I strike them down, my father? Shall I strike them down? Elisha said, Do not strike them down. Would you strike down a man you captured with your own sword and bow? Set food and water before them so that they can eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he gave them a great feast. They ate and drank, then he sent them on their way, and they went to their master. The Aramean raiding parties did not come into
1: the land of Israel anymore. Just just a great ending to that story. That is it's very it's very interesting. And it's also, you know, not the way most, you know, non god fearing people would deal with that that situation. If they had their enemies in their hands, they probably would have killed them. But, you know, Elisha shows mercy to their men to those men. And then they go back to the king of Aram and tell him what happened and you know, he goes, Okay, well, Elisha has God on his side. I'm not sure I want to go and mess around with that anymore because it's not going to end well for me. Right. Uh, Should we get into the gospel lesson? You want to read that? Sure. Uh, The gospel, there's two options. I picked the Luke 10 one for this weekend. Um, And it says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He told them, I was watching Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Look, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will ever harm you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names have been written in heaven.
0: And this is why in Kentucky and the Appalachians
1: and south of that, we have snake handlers for worship. To which I said if that was a requirement of the Lutheran ministry, I would become a different religion. Snakes? I didn't know there'd be snakes. I, I honestly think that's the reason I'm terrified of snakes because I watched Indiana Jones incessantly when I was, like, seven. And, well, Indiana Jones is cool, and he's a scared of snakes, so psychologically, to be cool, one should be scared of snakes. I also am convinced they're all Satan's servant, and they so are the only animal that God cursed directly. Yeah. Uh,
0: talking about being afraid of things, uh, I had a mom ask me the other day for her third grader if he could watch... Uh, the Mandalorian and I said absolutely and the third was right there oh wow and I said well you have to listen to what your parents say because and I said I can't think of any episodes that are really scary that a third grader couldn't watch and then I, I then I said except for maybe the ice spiders and then she said oh yeah he is afraid of spiders we have someone with arachnophobia here So all right that and then I, I said well Maybe you shouldn't watch it, but I can describe it for you. And then my wife was said, no, you don't do that either. So, yeah, spiders, snakes, and so forth. But uh, what, what does this text have to do with
1: this festival, Nathan? So, again, there's been some debate over interpreting this verse uh, where it says, where Jesus says, I was watching Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Uh, there are some who have taken that to say this is Jesus describing Um, he in his pre-incarnate state. He was there at the creation of the world. Uh, He was there when Satan fell. Others have seen this as Jesus is talking about. He's right now in the moment of this text seeing Satan fall because the message of the gospel is getting proclaimed. And I think you, you can easily see both of those things in this verse. Um, but it ties in this weekend because the lesson from Revelation 12 talks about Satan falling from heaven. And so it's that, that whole idea of this spiritual warfare that's going on. But Satan has been vanquished. Satan has fallen from heaven. And then that
0: idea of that nothing will harm you, that God sends his angels to protect you. And so we're going to look at this next in the Revelation 12 text as Satan is called the accuser, as he accuses us day and night. And that, that ac- the accusations that Satan is going to tell us are very real and they're very truthful, some of them. And when he accuses us saying, you know, Nathan, you are not a good Christian, you know you especially compared to other people because we were just talking about that the other day that there we know at least one person, there's probably a lot of people, but at least one that really calls into question our sanctification because this is this is a guy that's very sanctified. but uh, when Satan accuses you of the way that you have Sinned, you don't really love God, or if you're going through a difficult time, maybe health and so forth, and then he might say, Well, God doesn't love you. Look at the way that you have uh, hurt yourself, you've hurt others, you hurt your family, you have hurt God with your sins. Uh, God, uh, you are not a good Christian, and then <clears throat> he He's right in those things, and he's going to whisper in our ears other kinds of things, too, and then that's where we have to say, Satan, you're defeated. You've been struck down by Christ, and we can say, like Luther in A Mighty Fortress Is Our God,
1: one little word can fell him, that little word of Jesus. It is. Satan loves to do, you know, to play that role of accuser, to burden us with guilt, to carry around that guilt, to wonder, does God, is God going to forgive me for this sin? Or, or he twists it a little bit saying, okay, well, in order to make up for this sin, I need to do these good these good things. I need to punish myself so that God will love me. Um, and as a pastor I knew would often point out, he's like, if you listen to those accusations, if you, if you hang on to that guilt, well, what are you doing? You're calling God a liar. You're saying that when God says, I have declared you not guilty, you're hanging on to that guilt, and you're almost saying, God, I I don't trust you. I don't trust your promise. I need to do something else. And that's exactly where Satan wants us. He wants us focused entirely on ourselves instead of looking at Christ and remember that Christ has done it all for us. And
0: every accusation of Satan really comes down to the first question that he gave to Adam and Eve. It's the same thing he does with us. He's a one-trick pony. Did God really say yeah, whatever it is when you know did God really say you're forgiven? Did God really say he loves you? Did God really say that he is loved by you? And all of those things that all always comes
1: down to that same question or taking what God has said and manipulating and twisting it in such a way to say almost the exact opposite we see that in the temptation of Christ in the desert where the verse we just talked about that he will command his angels concern you to guard you in all your ways Satan used that at Christ to say well hey throw yourself down from the temple roof because God said he'll send his angels and you know Yes, God is going to protect us, but that doesn't give us a license to go and, you know, be a daredevil, to do stupid things, to put our life at risk, or how Satan takes the beautiful message of the gospel and twists it to say, hey, you're forgiven, you can go and do Whatever you want, um, as one of my friends one time said in college, and he is still mortally embarrassed to this day whenever I bring it up. Uh, so hopefully he never hears this. Uh, but he one weekend looked at me and said, "Hey, sins can be forgiven," and you know just that that attitude, that looking at the gospel as a license to go in sin. How Satan takes something that's beautiful and wonderful and makes it something terrible.
0: And then the last verse of that short text of uh, don't rejoice that you're able to command the demons because we do have power over the demons but we should never underestimate the power of the devil and his demons. They're not as powerful as God obviously. You know, they're not equals. The The devil is not equal to the Son of God. He's still just a created angel. But he's been around for a very long time, and he's very powerful. He knows what he's doing. He knows what works. And if it doesn't work, he'll just twist it. So we can rejoice that we can make the devil and his demons flee by uh, preaching God's word, reading God's word, singing God's word. I mean, if I'm singing God's word, the devil and the demons are going to be running away and shrieking for a different reason besides just God's word. But we should rejoice that our names are written in heaven, that our names are written in the book of life. That's the promise that the devil can never snatch us away from Jesus' hands. He can never erase our names from that book of life that
1: God had written in eternity. When you see that played out, I think it's in the book of Acts, where you, you have some... You have some people who thought, well, we've been given power over over devils, and so we're going to use the name of Jesus, and we are going to go out and show people how powerful we are. And you have the seven sons of Sceva who get beaten mercilessly by a demon who says, what does he say again, well, Paul I've heard of, and Christ I know, but I have no idea who you are. Um, and it's it's that warning like Jesus says here yes you have power to command the demons but that that's not that's not where your focus should be your focus should be on me how i defeated satan and his minions and to put your hope in your salvation and before we get to that defeat just think
0: about the all of the accounts of angels in the bible I had fun with my eighth-graders talking to them about creation, and then in their homework, they had to tell me what day of creation they thought the angels were created. Because scripture just says that they were created, not what day, so some said day one, because it sounds like the angels were there watching creation. It could They said day four, when God created the celestial bodies, the sun, moon, and stars, and angels are celestial, spiritual beings. Some said day five when God created the birds because they have wings and angels have wings. Uh, some said day six because angels and humans interact with each other. But we see angels an angel uh, right away in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve had sinned and God kicked them out of the garden. There is a cherubim, a two-winged angel that is has a flaming sword to keep them from entering the garden. You see... Two angels come down from heaven with God in human form, have dinner with Abraham, and then God sends the two angels to Sodom to rescue Lot and his family before he burns it up with sulfur from heaven. Think of Daniel. In the lion's den, an angel coming and closing the lion's mouth, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, thrown into the fiery furnace. The king says, I thought I threw three men but I into the furnace, but I see four men, and the fourth looks like a son of the
1: gods. What are some other Old Testament angels? Well, you've stories? got um, Jacob and the stairway to heaven with the angels ascending and descending on that stairway. You have the... I believe it's the angel that come comes and kills, ah, doesn't he kill a number of the Israelites after David in his vanity counts his armies? Mm-hmm. I think it is. I you, We could get entirely sidetracked in this podcast talking about the angel of the Lord and which references in the Old Testament are to ministering angels and which are to the pre-incarnate Christ. Um We see angels throughout the Old Testament serving as God's messengers, helping his people, protecting his people. Getting back to our festival in in Daniel, we see the archangel Michael listed as the special protector of the nation of Israel and how he is there helping Daniel, giving him his visions, explaining to him his visions.
0: And so if you have a special angel that's over a city, like Daniel talks about, then you extrapolate that out and
1: oh maybe there are evil angels demons that are doing the same thing. Well, and Daniel kind of alludes to that that the angels sometimes where it gets really well I mean a lot of Daniel is confusing but it talks about <laughs> the angel that was hindered in his coming to Daniel and like there angels in the scripture they're one of those things that we we want to know more and scripture tells us just enough. It it's not Angels are not something that are necessary for our salvation. And the point of scripture is to tell us what is necessary for our salvation. But angels are, again, that special blessing that God gives to believers. And again, it's one of those things. We have so many questions. What does this look like? How do they do battle? What kind of power? What do they, you know, how do they compare in power to the demons? What does that spiritual warfare look like as it's played out? And scripture is silent. And it's one of those things we, we have to be careful how far we go in our speculation or if we do to say, well, this is just what we're speculating. It's based on scripture, but it's not scripture. Right. And I going back to your discussion about the days of creation, I got a, a kick out of that when we went through it at the seminary and you read the church fathers and the theologians and how they make arguments for all the different days. And I forgot there's one day that none of them say, and it might've been day, it might've been day five. And I said the same thing. I'm like, well, angels have wings. So why <laughs> wouldn't it be day five? There you go.
0: Yeah, and then you look at angels in the New Testament. And I think it's important for us to realize, in the New Testament especially, how often the angels show up at the momentous events of Christ's ministry. So the angel Gabriel comes to Mary to announce that uh, she will conceive a child. The angel goes to Joseph and tell him, don't divorce her quietly because the child that's conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit then I imagine there's a whole host of angels. You know, they've noticed that the Son of God is no longer sitting on his throne for nine months. And where is he? Well, he's been humbled in the womb of Mary for those nine months. And then I imagine the angels volunteering, saying, I'll go down at his birth. And then the Bethlehem sky lights up as the angelic choir sing glory to God in the highest and peace to men on whom his favor rests. The there's angels that are ministering to Jesus after his uh, 40 days in the desert, not eating and being tempted during that time. Uh, There's an angel that ministers to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane after praying all night. And then uh, we don't see the angels at the cross, but I think we're going to talk about it. Maybe they were there in in the heavens of our epistle lesson. But then you see angels at the resurrection. Again, the momentous events in Christ's life. An angel rolls away the stone to show that Christ is no longer there. One sits inside and angel is sitting on the rolled away stone and says to the women, he he is not here. He has risen just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go tell his disciples. 40 days later, there's angels on the mountaintop after Jesus has ascended and says to the disciples uh, that Christ will come back in the same way you saw him uh, ascend, he will descend. And there from 1 Thessalonians 4, we know that the there will be a voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of god and god will send his angels to gather the souls of his saints from the east and west north and south on that day of judgment
1: i also really like the stories with the angels in acts where you know if you are a jailer trying to keep an apostle locked up the angels (laughs) are definitely the bane of your existence there you
0: go uh you want to get into the epistle lesson
1: Sure. The, uh, the epistle lesson for this week is from Revelation chapter 12, starting with verse 7. There was also a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. The dragon fought back along with his angels, but he was not strong enough. There was no longer a place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan, the one who leads the whole inhabited earth astray. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. They conquered him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives in the face of death. For this reason, rejoice, you heavens, and those who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has gone down to you. He is full of rage because he knows that his time is short. Uh,
0: Before we get into this text, I just want our listeners to also think about this, is how often the words and the songs that the angels are speaking and singing in scripture are the ones that we speak and sing in our Lutheran order of service. You have the Gloria, the angels singing to Singing to the shepherds and all of creation on the night of Jesus' birth, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men in whom his favor rests. The song of the six-winged angels, the seraphim in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty, that we sing that just before the words of institution. And then also... uh, This verse, uh, verse 10, this is part of our communion liturgy. And I remember, because I like the English language and I like it being punctuated properly, I was going, where is, this should be punctuated with commas and taking out the ands. And then I realized, oh, yeah. It's the scripture. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. All of these words and songs from the angels and how often we speak and sing them on a Sunday morning in our
1: liturgy. And I just want people to know that and realize it. And that's what's so fantastic about using the liturgy is to constantly be reviewing those words of Scripture, those songs of praise that come from the lips of angels praising our God, that we, too, we join with them, and we join with the entire church. Um, It reminds me a little bit of uh, someone pointed out to me that in, in older church architecture, when you had the communion rail, and a lot of times the communion rails would be in the shape of a half circle, The imagery there was that other half of the circle is those saints who are already in heaven and how you are communing with them. You are singing the same songs of praise with them that they're singing to God in heaven. So Nathan, this text
0: begins and there was war in heaven. So where
1: was this war and when was this war? Well, again, there is... I don't like to say disagreement. There, There's differences of interpretation on this. Some, again, say this is a description of the war that was fought sometime after the seventh day of creation, but before the fall into sin, when Satan rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven. Others say, specifically because they look at verse 11, that they conquered him because of the blood of the Lamb, that this was Satan's... There was a spiritual battle that was being fought on the day of crucifixion. And again, it's one of those things, I was reading a little bit in the commentaries, that Satan, while he is powerful and he is cunning, he did something profoundly stupid while Jesus was on earth. That Satan was so blinded by hatred and rage for God that he thought it somehow was serving his interests to have Judas Iscariot betray Jesus, to have the chief priests crucify him, that he seemed to think that by so doing, he would win. But instead, he helped orchestrate his ultimate defeat, that on the cross, Christ vanquished the devil. Yeah. And, you know, there was war in heaven
0: Uh, I think it's better for us to understand that it war in heavens, meaning not the heaven where God reigns, although God reigns everywhere, and and where the saints reside and so forth waiting for Judgment Day, that this would be the heaven-like space, another dimension where it is the skies and so forth. There was war in the heavens, and that helps us understand that. Uh, And then they lost their place in heaven. Yeah, if you take that as heaven, you know, paradise, then that would be, yeah, that would be the, after the seventh day of creation before the fall of sin. But if you say, but if we understand it, and I take it, I think the same way you do, that this took place at the crucifixion, that there is, uh, they lost their place in the heavens, the,
1: the space, the sky, the spiritual realm. And that does seem to be what it's talking about, that... That Satan was thrown down from that place in the heavens, and now he's confined to the earth. And that's where he's doing his work, is here on the earth. He knows, as it says in verse 12, he's full of rage because he knows that his time is short. Satan is like a cornered beast at this point. He's wounded, he's hurt. And all he can do is lash out and attack. And that's his entire goal, is to lash out and attack. As Jesus says, he's a murderer, and he's been a murderer from the beginning. That's what he wants to do. He wants to hurt and kill those who trust in God. Yeah, so you have this great dragon. Uh,
0: The earlier verses of chapter 12 describe this dragon as a seven-headed red dragon. Uh, Seven heads, and then there are seven, there are, uh, seven horns. Oh, there's ten horns on the heads
1: and seven crowns. Or do I have that reversed? I I don't remember. Okay. There's a lot of numbers in Revelation. Yeah. And uh, they're and they're symbolic. Right. Uh,
0: yeah. I think it's ten horns and seven seven crowns. But th- this is this uh, great red dragon, this ancient serpent. And when uh, don't think of. What I what I describe it to my catechism students is don't think of the dragons that we think of in Middle Eastern, not Middle Eastern, in uh, European architecture of a dragon with wings and legs, two like you know four legs and a tail and so forth. Think of more the uh, Eastern dragons of China and Japan and so forth, where it's more like a big serpent, a huge snake. And then it's got the seven heads. Uh, so with that, do you know who Tiamat is?
1: Tiamat is the Babylonian goddess. I believe she was... No, that's not
0: the one I'm thinking of. This is oh. from the the Tiamat from
1: the cartoon Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, so, so you're asking me about Dungeons and Dragons, and I'm giving you actual, factual, historical information. What do you mean? This is factual. This is part of my childhood. Okay. <laughs> of... uh.
0: That in the, in the cartoon of Dungeons and Dragons, they remade the cartoon into a movie. I haven't seen it, but uh, you had uh, one of the the bad guys in the movie is this uh, five-headed dragon, okay? But each one of them, each of the heads has a special power, like one breathes ice and snow, and another one is lightning, and those kind of things. I'm thinking that they kind of picture that five-headed dragon of Tiamat after the seven-headed dragon of Satan. But like you said, Nathan, is this uh, ancient serpent. And that phraseology, that description, takes us right back to the Garden of Eden, that ancient serpent of the devil that God promised it, uh, the devil, yeah, you will have your day one day you are going to reach up and you are going to strike and sink your serpent fangs into the son of God, the son of man's heel. And he's going to think he won. And yet, uh, he forgets the second half of that prophecy, that promise that the son of God is going to step down and crush the ancient serpent's head. And if we take it that way, uh, that's when he sees Satan fall like lightning from the sky. That's when Michael and the angels deal the death blow to, well, not the death blow, but a knockout blow
1: to Satan uh, hurling him from from the skies. Now, I haven't seen them all up yet, um, but we have a number of painted, they look like stained glass windows, but they're painting that go in the front of our sanctuary. Um, but we had someone that was, using them, uh, needed some pictures of them for a project they're working on. So I did get to see some of them. And I really like our one of the crucifixion that has a crushed snake underneath Christ's heel on the cross that you have that attack of the, of the serpent, but that Christ defeats him. He crushes his head on the cross. Yeah. And so there is this battle in the heavens and you
0: have Michael, the archangel, the commanding officer of the angelic army uh, with the two thirds of the army, because Satan has a third uh, of it, because it says in scripture in Revelation 12 that the great dragon swung his tail around. Uh, knocking a third of the stars out of the sky. We picture that as the angels, right? You're taking that as a literal interpretation I am. there, huh? Okay, fair enough. I am. It, it could be off, but... Uh, so you have Michael the Archangel, and you know he's doing combat with the devil and his demons, and what is he fighting with? Is he fighting with lightsabers or clubs or bazookas, or fighter jets, com- uh, Comanche helicopters, Apaches. No, he is using words. Uh, it says that, uh, that he defeated him with the uh, the blood of the lamb and by the word
1: of their testimony. So I think what we like... What we like to picture here is that when we hear a description of there was war in heaven, we're picturing these two battling armies that the angels are like the Hawkmen, the Flash Gordon swooping in in Hawk their Man. attack. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but, like, when you think about it, that's not what it was like. I mean, this wasn't two evenly matched armies clashing in the sky. There weren't angels that were getting struck and falling down. Satan launched an attack, and it was... It was doomed before it even began. He had no chance. You know, it it was a war, but it wasn't entirely a one-sided war. Satan was defeated. The angels didn't have to struggle to overcome him. He was thrown down because Christ had been crucified. Christ won that battle on the cross, and Satan had no chance. And I kind of talk about this, because I think in a lot of our popular culture, we like to think of good and evil, how Satan and the devil are... E- or Satan, the devil. How Satan and God are evenly matched, that there's good and there's evil battling for each other. Well, that's not, that's not what it is at all. Satan is nowhere near God's equal. Satan has almost no power compared to God. It's like an ant fighting... Fighting a force of nature. There, there's nothing. The ant can't do anything. It's, it's if, yeah. If there's an
0: equivalent for Satan, it would be Michael. You know, they because they're both created angels. Uh, and and I like this idea too. Like we said before of Satan, which means accuser. And it says here that he is accusing us day and night. And he's go- he rightly has uh, going to be accusing us of our sins. Now, he's also going to be whispering lies into our ears. And when it says that Michael defeated him by the word of the testimony, I imagine this conversation between Michael and the devil, probably not talking calmly, but you know, shouting and so forth, as Michael yells at the devil, uh, You are a murderer and you think that you defeated the son of God by murdering him on the cross. You think you defeated all of Christ's saints because you are accusing them day and night of their sins, except that, uh, Jesus Christ is the lamb of God that his blood was shed on the cross you killed him and by that death he defeated you and everything else he defeated sin and death and that blood of the lamb now covers over God's saints that you can accuse them of their sins Those sins are washed away. You can keep bringing up their sins in God's courtroom, and yet God doesn't see those sins. He only sees his son's blood. He instead knows that he has removed those sins as far as the east is from the west. He has drowned them in the depths of the sea. He has forgotten our sins. And that's our comfort, that when Satan comes at us, we can silence the dragon's mouth because we know... We are covered with Christ's blood. We are covered with the baptismal waters. We have God's word stuffed into our ears, uh, filtering down into our minds and in our hearts, and then we place God's uh, sacrament of the Lord's Supper into our mouths. It is that word of the testimony and word and sacrament that assures us, reminds us that
1: Christ was victorious, therefore we are victorious. I like to think of it, too, when it talks about, you know, The word of their testimony that, you know, it's this image of, you know, this wasn't a secret here. Here's the testimony of the prophets. Here's the testimony of the apostles. Here's God's plan of salvation laid out plainly in the pages of scripture. You were defeated before you even, you even began. Um, And just that wonderful comfort that we have when Satan comes and accuses us that we can point to God's word, the witness, and say, no, Christ has forgiven my sins. The great serpent has been destroyed. His head has been crushed. And therefore, uh, what this says in the text, therefore
0: rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. You <laughs> were excited because Christ is victorious. Therefore, we are victorious. And yet, it says, therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. What that's saying is that God, after the fall into sin by the devil and his angels, he created hell for them, not as their home, not as their place of residence, but as their prison, their dungeon. And yet they are like a dog on a a leash, Or if you want to say it like a a dog with a a shock collar, you know, run around the yard. But once it goes too far past its boundaries, then it starts yipping because it got shocked and has to stay there. So the dragon of the devil, he is ferocious and he is ticked off. And so he
1: is going to come at you hard. And this is one of those things, too, where Satan has been defeated. He's on that leash but that doesn't mean we go and play with him. Um, and I think that's that's a danger in our society and our culture is that, you know, as Christians, well, sometimes we, we either give in to temptation with the sins we struggle with in our lives or we're fascinated by these spiritual things. And so we go looking for knowledge about those things. Um, I think of an anecdote I heard about... Um, Dr. Siebert Becker, who wrote a book about Satanism and the occult, and he was asked to do a follow-up volume to it, and he said, no, I, there is power here, and it's tempting, and I don't want to have anything to do with it. I want to stay away from those things of darkness. And, and, and with that, I remember
0: listening to a podcast or two of uh, different areas, uh, different podcasters, but interviewing Catholic priests who are driving out demons. Uh, That is their work. And one of the guys, I think it was a a Catholic bishop, who oversees this work in a certain area in the Catholic Church, and he said to the host, anyone that is looking to do this, uh, to to be someone who is an exorcist, we don't want them. You don't want this job. Now, God might call you to it, and uh, it is a very real uh, ministry, uh, I think some of the what we might call you know drug addictions that we might call schizophrenia or any of those kinds of mental illnesses they very well could be demon possession we don't want to say everything is demon possession, but we cannot
1: discount it either Well, and I think this is one of the things that is Double-edged sword of danger in our society, where you have, on the one hand, you have—I can never remember who this quote is, but it's that quote that one of the the, one of the devil's greatest lies was convincing the world he didn't exist. He's kind of done that in Western culture, Mm -hmm. where you know we're getting towards the Halloween season, and how do you see Satan often portrayed? He's Mm -hmm. kind of this fun little character. I think of that show on, I think it's Fox, maybe it's not on Fox anymore, but Lucifer, where they make him a sympathetic character, um, that Satan's not real, that these spiritual things aren't real, and so therefore we can ignore them. On the other hand, what do you see the other side around Halloween? You see Satan presented as this vast, dark, evil force that basically is an equal to God, and that's not what he is Either. Neither one of those is the truth. And I think it's important to point out the truth of what Satan is to our people. Yeah, and I remind my
0: kids and adults all the time if you really want to know about different theologies of the world, just watch any Disney movie. Uh, Paganism runs wild in their movies. And one of them that came to mind as you were talking about uh, the devil is The Princess and the Frog. I think it's a, a good movie. But the best songs are given to the witch doctor, the voodoo doctor, who is finally uh, eaten by his own demonology and so forth. The demons capture him. But it looks fun and entertaining in cartoon form, and then, uh, you know, that's something that we need to be aware of. Uh, And that's something I make my adult confirmands aware of. Uh, I, I started a new adult confirmation class this last week. And I warned the people in that first lesson. Uh, I've done it for 27 years. And I tell them, uh, watch out. The devil's going to come at you. That if you were not a Christian before this, the devil wasn't all that concerned about you because he had you. Now, if he has converted you or you were, or now that God has converted you, but you were maybe a nominal Christian, you, you weren't doing anything with your faith, the devil... Uh, devil didn't like it. You didn't belong to him, but he wasn't all that concerned about you either because you weren't doing anything to him. But now that you have your kids in our school, you're having your kids baptized, you're being baptized, you're growing in your faith, you're coming to church. You are looking to be confirmed to become an active member of our congregation. You are going to be taking people, because you're excited about your faith, you're going to be sharing your faith and trying to, uh, through the testimony, your testimony, the Holy Spirit's going to bring more people out of Satan's kingdom. Now he's ticked off. And so he's going to come at you hard. So watch it. And without fail, every single person has come back sometime later and said, thanks for warning me pastor one of my last in the last class that i just finished up one of the ladies said oh, told her sister-in-law this i'm so glad pastor told me this now i know what's going on her life was just falling apart but because now she knows why because the devil and his demons aren't going to let her rest you know have time to study god's word have time to do the bible study have time and excitement to go to church uh, if she wouldn't have had that warning, she might have just uh, given everything up because it's too tough. But now she knows uh, I have I have Christ behind me. I know what Satan's doing. He can't he can't trick me.
1: And I think this is one of those areas that when we give those those warnings to our people, we we need to exercise good sense and discretion in the kind of warnings that we're giving. You know, are there certain things that we tell our members? No, stay. Absolutely stay away from these things. Anything occult where you're looking for forbidden knowledge or even some of the, you know, can yoga be fine if you're doing it just to cr- increase mobility? You said yoga, not Yoda. Yoda is fine. Yoga is not. Well, <laughs> unless you're seeking to find enlightenment from the universe. Yes. Um, but if you're doing it just for the stretching aspect, it's all well and good. But if you're getting into the Easter thing, Easter Easter... Eastern Orthodox, not Eastern Orthodox either. No, No. Eastern spirituality where you're trying to open yourself up to the influence of the universe. Now you're straying into an area that's dangerous. Um, If you struggle with those things, maybe stay away. But I don't think it helps our people by issuing broad blanket statements that if you're a Christian, you will never allow your children to go trick-or-treating, or that if you're a church, you are a scion of Satan because you have trunk-or-treat at your congregation as an outreach. You can't have your kids reading or watching Harry Potter and those kind of things. These things, these are, are exercising discretion and saying can I see that this this is a made-up story with made-up people that's not real and appreciate it for the fiction it is? Or do you say, oh, no, I see myself influencing, um, trying to get tempted down this path. Um, I think there's a difference, too, like to use your imagination, as I still, too, to this day, every time I walk up to an automatic door, (laughs) I wave my hand and open the door with the Force. And I'm on the opposite side trying to close it with the Force. (laughs) (laughs) Because I do that, too, and I'm older than you are. Well, that's like I really like our motion sensor light down here in the hallway by our office. I always gesture at it when I know I'm getting close, so it turns on. All right, so we're going to wrap it up here.
0: We have had our school kids, they've had their fall fun day. So one of the things that we have in our school, because we have three campuses, a few times of the year, today is one of those days, all the kids are together, and they're all on our campus, and they just returned. And we tried to shush them outside. We're in the pit of despair downstairs. So it sounds like we have a herd of wild
1: wildebeests stampeding above us
0: right now. Yeah. And uh, so we're going to wrap it up here. and then we look forward to next week, Lord, Lord willing, we'll have another special episode with Pastor Jeremy Leitinen, the youth minister at Shoreland, that we're going to be answering the questions posed to us as pastors from our eighth graders, our teenagers, and our college students. Uh, thank you for listening and hopefully learning some more things about St. Michael and all angels. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. You are thirsty, my friends, quench that thirst in the water of life.